Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry Roland. Yeah. Jerry said right before she pressed record, I'm sleepy. Three, two, one. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't hear. You didn't notice that, did you? I was just memorizing, I was, or practicing what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. Well, go ahead. I just did. Oh. I was successful. <laughs> you were practicing, hey, welcome to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we talk fiddles? Uh, yeah, Chuck Fiddle DD, let's do. I bought one a few years ago, by the way, and took one lesson. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you became an expert? Yep. No, that's just me, man. That's how things go with me. I have a lot of things that I've been like, I'm going to do this. Got a lot of balls in the air. Yeah, specifically musically. Uh, I bought a steel guitar and didn't learn to play that and sold <laughs> yeah. it. Okay. I bought a uh, keyboard and was going to learn to play piano. I didn't do that. Okay. Bought the violin. So, I'm keeping the violin, though. Okay. Um, so you're stimulating the economy. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I usually keep just like sell that and use that money to buy the next thing I don't play. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Like, I know how to play guitar, so I'm kind of realizing at my age, like, maybe that's all it's going to be. You're a guitar man, like Bread said. Yeah, but used, I used to want to be like, man, by the time I die, I want to be able to play all the stringed instruments. Gotcha. So that was my goal. Yeah. And I've learned one. <laughs> I um, I mean that's more than some people. I don't I don't know how to play any stringed instrument. So yeah, but you don't care to. It sounds like. No, I mean I well. So you consider the piano a stringed instrument? Uh, it's got strings. So uh, yeah, is it percussion or is it string or is it both? Well, a little hammer hits the string. Right, percussion. Yeah, interesting. Um, Whereas a harpsichord is plucked. Yeah, I don't know. talking piano. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could play the piano. I'd like to learn that one day. Right. My brother took lessons as a kid and my sister, but I didn't. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Scott can still play a little bit today. Of, of course. course. <laughs> hey, Scott. Super bro. Uh, so the fiddle, a little history here before we get into the man. Mm-hmm. Um, the fiddle or violin, there's no difference, by the way. Is that right? Yep. It's just one's, the, it. one's pronounced one way and the other's pronounced <laughs> the other way. Yeah. it's a little, And I thought there was a difference when I bought mine. I was like, well, what's the difference? And it's just in how you play it. They're like, hillbillies play fiddles. Yeah. Other people play violins. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the fiddle at first was not a well-regarded instrument. It was thought of as a sort of a cheap uh, tavern instrument. You know, like you'd get drunk and hop up on the table at the tavern. Really? And, and beat out a little Irish jig. Really? Uh, yeah. And it didn't have a good reputation. Wait, and, um, when? Well, I mean, this is uh, the 16th century. Okay. So then, initially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, right, I'm with you then. I'm with you. Okay. <laughs> Hanging on. Uh, and in, even in parts of Italy at first, the church ordered the destruction of violins. They were so, like, looked down upon. And then a lady named Catherine de Medici got on board, and she's like, this thing is wonderful. Sure. Uh, I'm going to order 38 of them for my court uh, from this guy named uh, Nicholas Amati, who was uh, the grandson of the great violin maker uh, Andrea Amati. Actually... She probably bought them from Andrea if it was the 1500s. Right. And, um, yeah, it was 1564. And uh, that was it. Things started to change, and that's literally what kind of led the violin down a, a path of respectability. Yeah, once you introduce it into court, sure, people tend to follow suit. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the Amadis lived in a place called Cremona 
Italy. That's right? right. And Cremona, because the Amatis lived there, who were basically the de facto inventors of the violin, cello, and viola as we recognize them today. Yeah. Uh, because that's where they were from, uh, Cremona became the um, center of violin production. Yeah. Stringed instrument production. Plain and simple. Yeah, which is pretty neat. Like the the idea that that's where violins came from and that they're that recent in origin. Yeah. And, of course, it goes further back than that. Like lutes were obviously around long before the violin. Sure. But, again, if you look at a violin today and say, oh, it's a violin, you can thank the Amatis of Cremona for for making that recognizable to you. Yeah, and here's another cool little fact. The uh the you know, the fancy beautiful shape of a violin is not for aesthetics. It is all about the sound that it yeah. makes. The and violin doesn't give a damn whether you think it looks good. <laughs> well, it turned out to look beautiful, but yeah. all those curves uh allow for equal uh, resonance of all the notes. Which, it, if it was more basically shaped, yeah, certain notes would be sound better than others. Huh. So um, that allowed the entire fingerboard to sound wonderful. Well, plus also if you look at a violin f- face on. Sure. Uh, if you go down the sides, in the middle, it, it's cut in. Yeah. Those are called C-bouts. Those actually have a practical purpose, I'm sure, in addition to helping produce sound. But it allows the bow to play the strings on either side without hitting the body of the violin. Yeah. Pretty, pretty clever. It's really hard to play. I can't stress that enough. It's like, I thought, this is not so different than a guitar. Like, I'm just holding it under my neck and using a bow instead of fingers. That's got to be a pretty big difference. It's a huge difference. Yeah, sure. Um, Fingers, bows, totally different. You're born with one, the other you have to, like, buy. (laughs) Well, it's it's a combination of pressure on a string, uh, angle of the bow on the string. Pressure from your parents. (laughs) Placement of the bow on... Like, as far as how far down it is, up and down the violin, mm-hmm. um, speed. Sure. It's like there's like 10 different things that go into making a, a sound on a violin that you have to do successfully all at once. It's really, really hard. Yeah. Like, I was intimidated and went, in the closet you go. Maybe my daughter will play one day and it will be waiting for her. Nice. So we'll see. But should we go over the, the parts? I know you mentioned the C-bout. Sure. Well, C-bout's my favorite, so you take it from there. Well, if you look at a violin, you got the very, uh, above those little tuning pegs, which are contained in the peg box, you've got the scroll, which is that kind of uh, curvy, lovely, fancy piece at the top. Yeah. Uh, then you have the neck and the fingerboard. The neck goes from uh, basically down to the body of the violin, but the fingerboard continues on through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the upper bout, the lower bout, and then that C-bout you mentioned, which is also called the waist. Yeah. And you have your two F holes cut on either side. Yep, the fancy holes. Yeah, they look like Fs. Uh, then you have your bridge, which is the very thin piece of wood that keeps the strings, you know, off of the violin body itself. Okay. And taut. Uh, then you have your tailpiece at the bottom where the strings end, and then the all-important chin rest. And that's a violin. Bam. Go I'm, make one now. I'm leaving. <laughs> So again, that was the Amatis that came up with the uh, the violin you just described. That's right. And one of the Amatis, the grandson of uh, Andrea Amati, who I think is credited with inventing the violin, basically. Um, but his grandson Nicola uh, taught a young man 
by the name of Antonio, Antro- Antonio Stradivari. Ooh, that name sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Antonio Stradivari was born in Cremona. They're not sure when. They think probably about 1644. Yeah, his life is a bit of a mystery, his young life at least. Right. Not a lot of great records on it. You know what? This just uh, jogged my memory. We never explained why Alexander Hamilton would shave two years off of his age, even though we specifically said we were going to. Well, that's awesome. Should we follow up now? Shh, probably not. <laughs> okay. I think people would get mad. Yeah, if you want to know, write in and we'll tell you. Or maybe we'll post it on social meds. I think that's better. Yeah. But who cares? We're talking Stradivari now. Yeah, we've moved on. All right, so Stradivari, uh, there's not very good records um, about his, his youth, I think, as you said. Um, but he pops up in 1666 at the very uh, latest. That's right. A violin pops up in 1666, I should say. It has a, an inscription on it and a label, actually. Uh, and if you translate it to English, it says, Made by Antonio Stradivari of Cremona, pupil of Niccolo Amati, in 1666. Well done. Year of Satan. Uh, and that means he was either a pupil, which it clearly says. Sure. Or a bit of... Uh, a bit of a stretch of the truth and a bit of a ruse and a career move. Really? Yeah, there's some people that say, and that's why I was wondering, it says people believe, some people believe he was a pupil. Yeah, I didn't I get like, what the... Well, it says he was a pupil in the inscription. Right. But the other thought is that maybe it was a bit of a career move to say, I was taught by the great Amati. Right. Um, Who's dead now and can't say otherwise. Maybe, but uh, who knows? I, I bet he was probably a pupil. Actually, he wasn't dead, so that would have been pretty uh, gutsy sure. to have done that, because um, Amadi didn't die for many years, many more years after 1666. So I think the, the common consensus is that he was a pupil of yeah. Amadi. He would have said, he's stealing my business, so what up with that? Right. Man, this thing is going to be <laughs> lousy with that. Uh all right, so 1666, you are correct. He builds his very first violin on his own. Uh, he continues to build violins on his own in his attic, which was apparently the tradition. Attic violin building. Was it? That's what it said. Huh. I guess that was just like where you would put your workshop. Okay. Who knows? Maybe it... I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie The Red Violin? Yes. Great movie. Agreed. Like, stick with it. I think I might have seen that on your recommendation years ago. Probably. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, really good movie, though. Yeah. Um, so he's making violins. He uh, moves into a home in 1680, and um, he started to get some recognition as uh, a great builder and maker of violins, a great craftsman. He did. Uh, and he was still kind of living in the shadow of the Amadis, um, but when... Uh, Nicola Amati died in 1684. By this time, uh, everyone said this guy is Cremona's best maker of violins. Yeah. Which, since Cremona was the world capital of violin making, they were made elsewhere, but Cremona was like the place where the best were made. The creme of the Cremona. Right. <laughs> that made him the world's best violin maker, and he hadn't even entered his golden period yet. Yeah. Uh, and he was making more than violins. He's making cellos and guitars and mandolins and harps uh, pretty much... Anything with strings. Except harpsichords. <laughs> Who knows? He might have made a harpsichord. No, but that'd be worth a lot. Probably so. Uh, all right. Should we take a break here? Yes. All right. We'll get into more uh, craftsmanship right after this. 
right. So Stradivari is following in Amadi's Amadi mm-hmm. his footsteps, but he's also like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna start tweaking this thing. Yeah, and craft my own brand of violin. Uh, and he does so. He said, I'm gonna use some new materials, maybe uh, some new finishes. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make that C bout a little straighter than you're used to. Yeah. Make and the F's a little straighter, the F holes. Oh, is it straighter? Was that the deal? I think so. And then we altered the F hole some. Mm-hmm. And uh, something with the scroll, too. Is that right? Uh, he made it more amazing. <laughs> and he made the uh, the scroll larger. Big yeah, scrolls. The F holes, not only straighter, but longer. Right. Larger scroll and a, and a straighter and stronger C-bout. That was like mechanically... That those were the biggest differences, right? But he also crucially came up with his own formula for a varnish. Um, it's a very easily recognized deep, deep red brown varnish. That's right. That his violins have. It's very handsome, but a lot of people, as we'll see later, believe that it's possibly the varnish that makes Stradivarius violins so great. Yeah. Because when he made these changes, not only was he making these changes to the um the shape and appearance of the violin, um he was also like a master wood inlayer like the the craftsmanship that yeah. his violins had were just unparalleled. They were yeah. flawless, flawless works of art yeah. as musical instruments. So in addition to just being a flawless work of art, they also sounded better than anything Anything that could possibly um, compare, yeah, be compared to it. Um, and what's really exceptional about Stradivarius is it's not just one of those things where, like, oh, the name is actually what what is right. really driving it. A Stradivarius violin that's three hundred years old today is probably better than any violin that's been produced in the last three hundred years, including a brand new one. Like they're yeah. only now. Getting to the point where they can, uh, they, they've discovered techniques where they can start to replicate the sound of a Stradivarius. Yeah. That's how good this guy's violins were. That, that it's not, it's not a joke. It's not hyperbole right. of how great the Stradivarius violins were. They are still the ones that this guy made by hand are still the best violins in the world. Yeah. That's and the most really after. saying something. For sure. Considering how much progress we've made in the last 300 years on just about everything. And, th- and these are, you know, for the, the finest uh, tuned ears in the world, like clearly there are flawless, amazing instruments and violins uh, being produced since then. But for the true like aficionado, mm-hmm. they can spot the difference apparently. Oh, yeah. Like you and I can't. No, but um, people whose job it is to um, identify sure. and appraise Stradivarius violins say that Comparing it to a non-Stradivarius, like a knockoff or something, is like comparing a Ferrari to a school bus. Yeah, well, It's like that obvious sure. for them. People like saying things like that. It's a great quote. <laughs> We're just a couple of schmumps. What do we know? Um, so Bev just went, oh. <laughs> Might be a new gag. So uh, he and his first wife had six kids. He was good at having kids. He and his second wife, uh, his wife sadly died in 1698. He got remarried and had five more kids mm-hmm. with wife number two. Mm-hmm. He was great at making violins and uh, making children. Yes. Crafting children. He was great at it. Crafting little babies. Yeah. 
They call them the maestro in the bedroom, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I think a couple of his sons even went on to follow in his footsteps, is that right? From his first marriage. Right. They were schmumps. Not that second lot. They were schmumps, though. <laughs> they couldn't right. hold a candle to their father's work. So let's talk about the golden period, uh, from 1700 to 1720 to 25, depending on who you talk to. Mm-hmm. This was the golden period where these violins, I mean, he had really honed his design at this point, and the materials that he used and everything kind of all coalesced into making the best violins in the history of the world. Right. It was like LeBron's tenure at the Heat. Oh, well, we'll see. His career's not over yet. Yeah. Wow, you're calling it now, huh? I mean, he 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 made a case for a resurgence this past season, but we'll see if he can repeat it. <laughs> okay. He was playing on 500 cylinders with the Heat. It was just perfect because he didn't have to be the team leader. He well, could no. be one of, like, the leaders. This, that team had several leaders, and he could be one of them. Yeah. It wasn't like the whole team just pushed upward toward LeBron. See, a lot of people have the opposite view that that was, you know, anyone can get on a team of superstars and win championships. But No, not necessarily. To That's... be the one leader is um, a bigger accomplishment. I'm very curious to know how, say, like the Golden State Warriors are going to be yeah. next season with Durant and Steph Curry and Clay Thompson on there. Yeah. Thompson not so much, but like Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, they're like two of the greatest players that have ever lived, ever yeah. lived, not just they're playing right now. How are they going to gel? The idea that Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and LeBron James uh-huh. were all able to keep their egos in check and come together to work together yeah. and lead a team together, that I think that's harder than this, just being like, forget it, I'll do it myself. You think? Yes. All right, so Stradivari is uh, making his mark on the world, getting his reputation, and he's making a lot of money. He wasn't one of these. It's like after he died, they later realized how right. great he was. He was a rich man yeah. making and selling these violins. Yeah, apparently there's a phrase, rich as Stradivari. Yeah. Like richer than an astronaut is what we would say today. Yeah, he was one of the more famous guys in Italy at the time, for sure. Yeah, and rightfully so. Uh, his crowning achievement, supposedly, is uh, in 1716 when he built the Messiah. Uh, and this is the only violin that he never sold. That he kept in his workshop till the day he died. It was his head stash violin. <laughs> and um, he, this, this violin has rarely been played. Uh, apparently one of the sort of things, unspoken rules when this thing's been sold and passed down mm-hmm. is that don't even play it. This one should remain pristine. Yeah, it's basically as close to a mint condition Stradivarius as you can find in yeah. the world. Oh, well, it's not close. It's mint. Yeah. And, but I mean, uh, a couple of people have played it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's not been unplayed. Okay. Yeah. A couple of bad eggs in there. A couple of super lucky violin players. Said, screw your unwritten rules. Yeah, well, this, playing is, this, thing. this is before the Ashmolean got their hands on it. Oh, okay. Um, so post-1720, post-Golden Period, he still produced uh, violins and things, but uh, apparently his eyesight was going, his hands were not as steady, mm-hmm. and they weren't quite what they were during the Golden Period. I'm sure they were still wonderful violins. Oh, yeah, he's still churning out the good yeah. stuff, but nothing and, like that Golden Period. And he worked to, into his 90s, so mm-hmm. he was building violins for, you know, 70 years. He worked up to his death, as far as I understand. I think so. Um, 
So yeah, but that golden period stuff, that was, there was the Messiah from 1716, the Allard from 1715, the Betts from 1704. Um, it, those are just a few of the ones that he made during this period that are still around today. He made, I saw a thousand, I also saw 1500 stringed instruments yeah. during his career. Amazing. About 650 survive today. Um, and they're, they tend to have, Names, especially the ones from his golden period, as you just heard. Yeah. Um, they have names and they're usually the name of the most famous, uh, player who owned it. Right. Um, they weren't like, uh, Skippy and Old Roy. <laughs> right. Barnabas. <laughs> Barnabas the violin. Right. So, um, there's a, there's a superstition among violinists that the, the more you play a violin, the more a particular person plays violin, the more that violin takes on the character of that player, right? So much so that a, a violinist or even a cellist or a violist can come along afterward and play that person's violin. Yeah. And it will, it will sound much more like the person whose violin it is than the person playing it. Oh, wow. And there's, there's, a further superstition that the more you play a violin, the better it sounds. Well, that's not a superstition. That's fact. Right. With so, any instrument. So there is a study um, from, I think, 1996 that I came across that sh- that found that the more violin wood is vibrated, yeah. the more the um, dampening coefficient is lowered. The lower the dampening con- coefficient, the longer a note resonates. The longer a note resonates, the richer the sound. Yeah. And so just playing it, right, because you're you're vibrating the wood when you're playing a violin, yeah. the more you do that, the, the the more frequently you do that, the better the violin's actually going to sound. So yeah. astoundingly, the more you play a violin, the better it sounds. Well, that's true for any instrument. Uh, Is it? Yeah, it's called breaking it in. Oh. It's, um, it's like a pair of jeans. That's not, you, oh, you can man, identify yeah. with that. Sure. I love jeans. <laughs> and you know, a pair of jeans five years in are better than they are when you take them off the shelf. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's, uh, breaking it in, especially strings with anything with a fingerboard. Uh, that fingerboard just, you know, it wears in, those frets wear down a little. Mm-hmm. And it does get a little bit attuned, I think, to your style. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'd like to do more on musical instruments here and there. Okay. I'm putting it out there. All right. All right. Well, let's take another quick break, and uh, we will get into uh, all the controversies surrounding just why these things uh, sound so good and all those theories. Pretty interesting stuff. So, Chuck... I gotta say, you did a good job putting this one together. Mm. Okay, <laughs> sure. I'm I'm interested in it. You know, we I had that stuff from the B side podcast for like two months mm-hmm. with back in the day. People still call for it, and we uh, covered this very briefly. Oh, really? Yeah, and not we didn't do right by it, so that's why I was like, you know what? That's a good topic. Nice. Let me dust that one off. Nice. Um. So there have been many, many theories over the years. Like if the the Strad is so revered and legendary that people, experts, scientists are bound to want to crack that nut. Yeah, like why? Yeah, like what's the deal? 
And it's not, again, this is, it's objectively better than other violins. The That's ones right. that Strat- Stradivari made. Correct. Some of the theories, the old theories back then was that he would soak the wood in salt water. Not true. Uh, that the wood was coated with volcanic ash. Not true. Uh, that <laughs> dragon's blood was used in the varnish. Uh, that may have been true. Okay. <laughs> Uh, George R. R. Martin came up with that one. <laughs> probably so. And then I'll, you know, we'll, we'll get into the more modern theories. There's really, well, there's a couple of leading theories. One is the wood. Yeah. This Ice Age wood, which we'll talk about. And the other is the varnish. Mm-hmm. Right. Go. Oh, okay. Well, uh, the, the Stradivari was working during what's known as Europe's Little Ice Age which is a period of unusually, very unusually colder temperatures. Um, and I think they're still trying to figure out what the heck happened. And as a matter of fact, we need to do like an, a regular Ice Age podcast, and we'll talk sure. about it then. Yeah. But the upshot of it was that because of the colder temperatures, the spruce that uh, was used by Stradivari um, in the manufacture of these violins yeah. grew slower but more evenly, steadier, so that the wood that was harvested from these spruce trees was much more um, uniformly grained, right? Yeah. So just basically really high-end wood is was produced by this little ice age. The problem with that being the reason that Stradivari's um, violins were so great is that that wood was also available to violin makers elsewhere in Europe, and their violins don't sound anything like a Stradivari. Yeah. So the Little Ice Age theory, while still, I think, um, out there, has it, I think that really kind of goes a long way to undermining it. Yeah, like, they were people were really excited about that at first, and I think they're like, this yeah. is not proof. It's a cool theory. It is cool. Little Ice Age. Uh, there's another dude at Texas A&M uh, named Joseph uh, Nagivari. Nagivari. What a unique name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, it's all about this varnish, this Cremonese, Cremonese varnish. <laughs> Is that not right? Yeah. Cremonese. Yeah. I think that's what they say. Start your morning right with Cremonese. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, he published an article in Scientific Journal Public Library of Science One. <laughs> it's capitalized for yeah. some reason. And he says, you know what's going on here? It's this, it's this varnish that he used. Uh, let me analyze it chemically. And what he found out was it's very unique in that it has these things in there that you would not expect to be in, be in a varnish, like borax and chromium. Mm-hmm. And he said, so what I think is going on is this stuff, he added this stuff to the varnish to protect it, uh, that wood against damage and infestation. But what it really did was actually weakened the wood and made it porous uh, where it should not be, and that created more uh, tone, a more booming, rich, powerful tone. Right, and he got a lot of pushback. His well, his theory is not entirely out of left field. Like it's it's pretty much accepted that if you put the wrong kind of varnish on a violin, it's going to ruin the sound. Sure. So his whole thing was, well, why couldn't you? F- stumble upon some varnish that actually enhanced the sound. And that was his idea that that's, that accounted for Stradivari's uh, violin sounding like that. Um, 
Yeah, I think he did get a lot of pushback. He did. There seems to be, even if he's right, there seems to be a uh, desire among the people who collect and play Stradivarius violins is that we'll never understand what makes it special. We don't really want to know what will make it special. Yeah. Um, there's a guy who was widely quoted. Um, he's a violinist from America. His name's James Eanes. Eanes? Eanes. Man. Uh, well, James, his whole, his whole view is that he's played a number of Stradivarius uh, violins and other stringed instruments. And he said that there's probably a thousand things that make them special. Yeah. And we can never possibly know what all those thousand things are. And there's never just going to be just this one thing that is the key to what made Stradivarius violins so great. Yeah. I think, um, I, I watched a BBC documentary, uh, that was really pretty great. And, um, they interviewed another violin maker and he said, you know, it was the right place, right time thing like this guy came along maybe they had this good wood that was special maybe he had this varnish that was special um yeah but they were in the hands of somebody special too clearly. well that was his point was uh was that other people were using some of these same things and they turned out very different mm-hmm. he said he was so good at what he did like that's the secret he was just better at doing this than other people right like how chris bosh and Dwayne wade brought the best <laughs> out of lebron james well, where I think this Texas A&M professor um, erred was that he was so bold as to even posit the idea that it may have been an accident and that like... I would say bold is a, an appropriate term. Yeah, like they turned out this good on accident. He didn't know this varnish was going to do that or the wood may have been even pre-treated with these chemicals he, he, and he kind of lucked into what it ended up being. Yeah. And not that he wasn't talented, but like that's why they are what they are. And people were like, whoa. Blasphemy. Yeah. Out. Heretic. So how much do these things cost? A lot. The end. <laughs> I saw, I mean, the numbers are all over the place. Like one thing we'll say that the, the record was $3.544 million. Yeah. And then later on, the record was broken with $3.6 million with the Molitor Stradivarius, owned famously by, um, Milwaukee brewer Paul Molitor. <laughs> That's where that one got its name. Well, um, yeah, I agree. And then this says in June 2014, the Kreutzer had a presale estimate of seven and a half million to 10 million. Right. But it failed to reach the reserve price. Right. But then later on, another one, um, sold in 2011 for 16 million. So uh, apparently nobody's really keeping tabs here. I looked on the internet. I couldn't find anything approaching a, a comprehensive list of yeah. how much these things had gone for. But the fact is... Millions of dollars. T- tens of millions in some cases, from what I understand. Okay. And there are collectors, very, very wealthy collectors, who are driving the price of Stradivarius violins and other string instruments sure. through the roof. Yeah. Where if you were smart enough to buy one for a few hundred thousand dollars 20, 30 years ago, it's worth easily 10, 20 times that now. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame that these aren't in the hands of the great players of the world, you know? Well, they're in the hands of the great players of the world who come from very wealthy families. Yeah, or who, like you said, bought one 20 or 30 years ago. Right. And that's their, you know, their go-to. But yeah, it's just, it's just another fat piggy thing to, to <laughs> buy and own and possess. Yeah. The one I have is the most expensive one. Right. Um, fortunately, the one that's, 
so so valuable that it's frequently cited as priceless is the Messiah. Yeah. And that is owned by the Ashmolean at Oxford University. Yeah. So that one's not up for grabs. No. Which is cool because all the other ones are just operating under that level. Yeah, and the lady in the BBC documentary is a violinist, and she got to hold the Messiah mm-hmm. with gloves. And it's called that because there's a nativity scene in laid on the back, I believe. Oh, uh, I don't think it's the back. I think it's in the little tailpiece. Oh, okay. Um, but it, this thing is gorgeous, and she was allowed to hold it with gloves, it's like white cotton gloves. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, even though I knew that wouldn't happen, I was like, don't drop it. Yeah, yeah. You know, those slippy little cotton gloves? Sure. And it just made me nervous watching it. Did you ever see that video of things that were very expensive things that were accidentally broken that I made years back? I remember that, yeah. It's just like, it was tough to tough to make. I bet. It's tough to watch, too. Yeah. Uh, so over the years, there have been many, 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 many fakes. Uh, as soon as he died, they started pumping out um, forgeries. And not even forgeries, like just mass-produced violins that they would right. throw a label on. That at the time, in the 19th century, 18th and 19th century, the people buying the violins knew that they were like knockoff manufactured fakes. Yeah, largely in Germany, right? Right, but they weren't like... Um yeah, they weren't, they weren't being duped. It was right. like, this is, this is in the style of Stradivarius or right. whatever. Yeah, largely in Germany and Czechoslovakia. And the thing is though, is over time, these, what are now pretty old violins, cause they were again made in the 18th and 19th century. Yeah. They had labels on them that would say like Stradivarius, Cremonesis, Facibat, Anno, and then say like 16, 79 or yeah. something like that, right? So if you find one of these violins in your attic yeah, and it looks pretty old, yep. it literally says in Italian, this violin was made by Stradivarius in 1679, Yeah, you could be forgiven to think that you have just found a Stradivarius violin and all of your money problems are over. Yeah, You can go buy more meth than you'll ever be able to do <laughs> in your entire life. It might say made in Germany too, though. That's a big giveaway. It is. Yeah, and apparently if you're an appraiser of this kind of thing, you are so sick of people calling you that yeah. you can't even hide it when you're interviewed in an article. Yeah, the one guy even said that, um, he's like, people get angry when mm. you tell them it's not. He said, because they think they've got a lottery ticket and you have to break it to them. And he said, they get mad on these phone calls. Right. And they're like, well, do you have 20 bucks for meth? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, do you got anything else? Yeah. If you find a violin and you look it over and it says Stradivarius and you look even further and it doesn't say made in Germany. Fake. Uh, if it doesn't say that. I know, but it's still probably a fake. Well, you can, um, there's a Smithsonian article about it that has basically step by step what you can do and who you can submit photos to. Yeah. To get it basically pre-appraised. Well, not appraised, but just looked at. And they can usually tell from the photos, like, no, that's a fake. Like step one, uh, leave it out in the sun and let it, uh, let it get rained on a couple of times. <laughs> right. If ants are attracted to it, <laughs> right. it's not a strat. Exactly. Um, yeah, but, uh, one of the appraisers makes the point, like, there are about 650 in the world and they're all basically accounted for. Right. We know where they are. Yeah. And even when we don't know where they are, we know, we would know the ones that we don't know where they are when they surface. Yeah, like a, the, a stolen one. Yeah, there was one that was famously stolen um, 
30 something years ago mm-hmm. from a concert violinist and it was a Stradivarius and, uh, it was in the attic of a Milwaukee thief's house. Wow. And I guess he died and his girlfriend took it to an appraiser who's like, uh, this is stolen. I know whose this is. Crazy. So it's a very small community. So the idea that somebody's just going to walk up with like a real Stradivarius. Right. That, that had previously been unknown is it's just most likely not going to happen. Yeah, the uh, one of the other appraisers said it's like finding a new Rembrandt. He said we know what he painted. Right. We know where they are. Yeah. Um, now they got computers painting Rembrandts. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I think a guy left his uh, Strat in the cab a few years oh, ago yeah. too. Was it Joshua Bell? Uh, Sounds like something that guy remember. would do. He's wacky. <laughs> Can't remember. Uh, I, I believe that happened, though. I remember. Did he get it that. back? I think so. Only in New York, right? Jeez, can you imagine? <laughs> oh, no, because again, like these are concert violinists who have almost been entrusted by humanity with these things. Like here, this is a very expensive violin, yes, but yeah. we are giving this to you because we think you will enrich this and honor with it. your playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe someday it'll be called your last name, Stradivarius. Uh, play it well. Right. Don't leave it in the back of a cab. And then that guy had to get on Craigslist and buy a hundred dollar fiddle. <laughs> right. Yep. To play first chair at the Philharmonic. Yeah. Uh, Chuck. Yes. You got anything else? I got nothing else. I don't either. Good job putting this together, man. Thanks. Uh, if you want to know more about Stradivarius, you can search the internet for it because we don't have an article on how stuff works. Since I said. Uh, internet. It's time for listener mail. Uh, this is, we call this from my good buddy Bex, uh, Rebecca Bloomfield. She's, uh, one of my, my pen pals. Okay. From the stuff you should know on. Is she in prison? Over the years. She sure is. <laughs> no, she's not. Uh, she's a delight though. Uh, and she backed me up on my comments about, uh, women in science. So I felt good about it. So I wanted to read it. <clears throat> she made me feel better. I uh, hope you guys had a great time in the UK. By the way, she just missed our show in, uh, I think, in London by a couple of days, and she was very bummed out. Does she live there or was she visiting? I think visiting. She now lives somewhere else. Gotcha. Uh, so she said, uh, I know you did. I just listened to the delightful history of steam. Uh, anyway, I'm writing to say, bloody well done. Uh, is that a curse word? Uh, I think like it's like um, very. Oh, okay, great. Uh, well done, Chuck, on your comment on what we could have achieved if women had been allowed into the STEM fields from the start. I know this sort of comment can be a minefield for a guy, uh, but I can assure you, you made your point really well. I'm normally the first to jump on non-feminist comments or mansplaining. That's what I was afraid of. So she said, I'm usually the first to jump on the mansplaining. And uh, when you said it, I just said, yes, yes, Chuck, very loudly in my office. I even startled the dogs. Uh, raising children is very important, but men can do it, too. Uh, all humans of any gender should have a choice as to what they do with their lives. This should not be predetermined because of their gender. So good on you, Chuck. Makes me happy to know that the next generation of women are being raised uh, by men like you. And that's nice. from Bex Bloomfield. And she is a graphic designer for Little Red Robot Design. Ooh, shout out. And just a nice lady. Nice. Well, thanks a lot, Bex. Can I call her that, or should I just call her Rebecca? No, you're you're in the club. Okay. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Bex, for that email and for um, shouting. We appreciate that kind of thing. Certainly. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or Josh underscore um underscore Clark. 
You can hang out with us at uh, Charles W. Chuck Bryant on Facebook or Super Josh Clark on Facebook or Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can also send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 